So welcome to episode number 10 of Honestly Unbalanced. The time has flown by. This week we have on Niraj Shah. Niraj is a good friend and actually he's one of those people that if I needed any advice, I'd probably go to him. He'd be in my top three. Everything he says is considered, well thought out, logical and reasonable and I love his passion for research. Anyway, to more formally introduce him, he's an entrepreneur, stroke survivor, technology enthusiast, biohacker, meditation guide, and a mental well-being speaker. Uh, as a co-founder of Mind Unlocked, his mission is to make evidence-based practical mental well-being tools designed for busy 21st century lives more accessible. He's also the European co-chair for Silicon Valley's Transformative Technology Lab, which is a leading global community of entrepreneurs using technology to raise mental health and emotional well-being. Uh, and he also loves snowboarding and travel. So to point you in various directions that we're going to chat about, you can find more about Niraj at his website or Instagram, which is at Niraj Shah, but with a five instead of an S, uh, or at mind.unlocked. Enjoy the convo. So chances are a lot of you are practicing from home at the moment and maybe you could do the new yoga mat. Uh, I'm actually a Lifeform ambassador. I've used Lifeform for years, long before I was an ambassador. But I think they're the best yoga mats on the market and using code AHUSTLER19, all caps, you can get 10% off their stuff. I get a little kickback too. Honestly unbalanced. Niraj, so... I want to know what noun you are or what nouns you are. It's, it's quite common now that people end their signature with I'm this, I'm that, I'm a yoga teacher, I'm a podcaster. Uh, I've heard someone refer to them as like, how many slashes do you have? So how many slashes do you have or what would you call yourself? What, per day or? I'll give you my labels because I call them labels because labels change. So at the moment I've got several. So... I would say meditation guide, biohacker, snowboarder, amateur cocktail maker, angel investor, business advisor, entrepreneur. I think B we'll stop at that. Big, big list. Big list, like a little test for us. Which ones can we remember? What, something I just picked up on there was meditation guide. Why guide? I am very careful about the language because I don't consider myself a teacher because I don't want to get into teacher-student relationships mainly because i see myself as somebody who helps other people discover their meditation practice or things about themselves with using my knowledge and my experience to guide them along a path so they don't have to go through the pain that i've had to go through to get where i've got to and i see that as distinct to a teacher it's it's a personal thing it's just semantics at the end of the day i think so on that note, on the other labels you gave yourself, actually, I guess you're guiding in many of them as well, aren't you? With the investing, I or guess you're guided. Yeah, okay. Which what, which ones? Which ones? Which ones are you being guided? Uh, biohacker for sure. Um, snowboarder for sure. <laughs> Amateur cocktail maker definitely. So come in, imagine the fourteen-year-old you. No, actually, let's say let's go a bit more ambitious. The nineteen-year-old you. So you kind of maybe had a good idea of what you wanted to do with life to some degree. If you'd have, if you'd have kind of told yourself you were going to have these labels, would that have been a surprise? Was that ever the angle you thought your life would end up going in? Some of them are and some of them aren't. So I think the entrepreneur investor labels are not a surprise. That Those I knew I wanted from around the age of about 15 onwards. Snowboarder would be a surprise because at that age, I definitely didn't understand why anybody would purposely go to the cold for mm -hmm. any reason. <laughs> so that, that one's a bit of a surprise. Um, I didn't know what biohacking was, so that, that one's definitely a bit of a surprise. The meditation piece is a big surprise. I, I don't think I would have gone down this path as early as I did if it weren't for the circumstances that led to that. So. I, I am surprised that that's such a big fixture in my life or probably more surprised that it's one that's so central to a lot of what I do, do now. Can you tell us about the circumstances that led you to meditate? Yeah, the 
long story short is that I was a normal guy in my 20s, work hard, play hard, sleep later, that kind of thing. And then in my late 20s, I started taking a passing interest in health because I stopped being able to get away with things like well, all the things that you can get away with until you hit your late 20s. You got, you got, a, you got a belly. So I'd actually, yeah, ex- exactly. I l- looked down one day, saw the spare tire, wond- wondered what that was all about and decided to clean up my act and start drinking less and exercising. So I became relatively healthy compared to most people. And the irony is that about a year after that transition, at the age of 30, out of nowhere, I had a full-blown stroke. So a very serious brain injury, very sudden. And that took a passing interest in health to an absolute obsession about learning about brain function, about vitality, about well-being. And it was that set of events that led me to directly back to yoga because I had a very wise neuro. neurologist i was going to say neurosurgeon but i was very fortunate i didn't ever have to have surgery Mm. so i had a very wise neurologist and he told me that you have to sleep every day this was 10 years ago you have to do yoga and nothing else physically until you've recovered Mm. and he also said you're going to make a full recovery i'm pretty confident and in hindsight it's quite important that he said that Mm. so that was the path that set me down back to yoga i came to it as a physical thing and through that i started dabbling in meditation and a couple of years later when i started my first business a little while after that meditation went from something i dabbled in to a much more regular habit i'd say something i've committed to because it started showing itself as an incredibly useful tool not just to help me sleep but also to keep me calm in negotiations to help me focus Mm. all all these things that are quite difficult today because of this crazy technological world that we live in why was he so confident that you would recover was that down to his experience or part of it because of your personality i I think it a, a lot of it was just pure luck because when you have that kind of brain injury, anything can happen. Mm. And he probably took a look at what had happened to me and could see, because it kept me in for a couple of weeks under observation tests, all of those kind of things. And the two major things that had happened to me, I'd lost the use of my legs, but it wasn't that they had no energy or power in them. I just couldn't connect my brain to them. Um, And we figured that out quite quickly. I, I kind of instinctively knew that anyway. And the second piece is, you can never be sure what the brain damage is going to be, but Mm. I could still think and I could still process what was going on around me. So I think based on those things, he may have said that, and I'm guessing it was probably his experience and probably a little bit my attitude, but I think in hindsight, it makes a huge difference when somebody that you put in a position of power says something like that, Mm. whether it's true or not. I think belief has such a huge part to play in recovery. Um, I think I also read somewhere on one of your amazing blogs, I've just been stalking you so much the last hour, um, about- Just the last hour? Oh, hours before that as well, don't worry. (laughs) Um, I think you said something like, uh, you've always had a natural belief that everything happens for a reason and that really served you in your recovery as well. Did I make that up or did I read that? No, you read that. I think the thought that's helped me the most is more or less what you said, which is that everything that happens, happens in a way that can serve me somehow. Because I don't believe everything happens for a reason. I I used to believe that everything happens for a reason, but I don't believe that anymore. I think things just happen. But I do believe that every situation, we can find something to serve us in that Mm. situation, no matter how dire the situation is. Mm. And that was what got me over the first major trauma in my life, which was my father passing away when I was 14 years old. And it definitely helped me with the stroke. And I've just found that when I talk about this, sometimes people get hung up about the idea, is that true or is it not? And I don't think it matters if it's true. What matters is, is it the optimal way to think or the most empowering way to think that gets you to do something to take back control and actually make something positive out of it and that's distinct from wishy-washy positive thinking mm. if that makes sense it's being it's being optim it's being optimistic and i think i think it's not, you can say anything to anyone if it's helpful if it hurts people that's where you cross the line but if it's doing something positive i don't ever think that's a particularly bad thing like even darren brown or devon brown 
when he does those he does those TV shows where he has an audience and he'll cure someone of not blindness but something something less severe than that. And for a few moments, due to the because clearly he has no magical ability, for those few moments or for a few hours, they believe they can do something, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes they they do that. So I think that power of placebo, whatever you want to call it, is a really can be a really wonderful thing. And there's varying degrees of truth as well, aren't there? I think there's truth, fact, truth, and there's also if you believe something and that's your truth, then it is true to you. Maybe not to someone else, but that's another degree of truth. If that makes sense. Yeah, truth is subjective. Yeah. We, 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 we know that. Yeah. Uh, well, I, guess, I guess you and I, we know that, but everybody doesn't know that yet. But tr- truth is absolutely subjective mm. apart from a few very basic, unarguable things. Yeah. yeah. Scientific, oh, this, I think uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who has like three layers of truth. I think he has political truth. Then he has the subjective truth. We're not going to get then he has scientific truth. I hit three layers of of truthfulness. You you said there. You said you went back to yoga. Mm. You said back. What point did yoga feature before then? Well, I'm of Indian origin, so my parents are immigrants from East Africa. And growing up, yoga was a fixture in my life. So I was chanting Sanskrit slogans when I was three or four years old without knowing what they meant. Uh, yeah, oh, I know. Well. It sounds really cool now, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it definitely gives me a lot of kudos in the <laughs> yoga world. So on trend. But, but I had no idea what it was. It was just like, yeah, this this is yoga. This is, you know, this is what meditation is. And so as a child, I had an asana practice, but it's something that, you know, once I'd got to about 13, 14, I kind of forgot about that. And then certainly by the time I got to my late t- teens, it got replaced by um, equally worthy pursuits like drinking and restaurants and that kind of thing mm. and tell us so after you had a stroke it, you started you went on the journey of recovery so how did you end what did you think was going to happen at that point so beforehand you were working in the city to some degree were you at that point you were still working in the city before the stroke yeah i was i was headhunting um by that point i think management consultants but most of my career was headhunting bankers at a fairly senior level so i after the credit crunch i moved back from hong kong to london and basically had to go down the food chain in in order to still have a job and that was a point where i really stopped enjoying it but my plan had always been to start my own business anyway and i we talked about belief and i had this belief that i need experience and i need a good idea and i need to have all those things line up before i do it which i Mm. now know are, are not actually necessary Mm. but at the time i believed it so yeah at the time it happened i was working for somebody else but i had also decided i'm leaving and i'd set a deadline because i i was not enjoying the people i was working for and and their sense of ethics and that kind of thing so that became the catalyst for me to actually get out of the industry and i i decided already i wanted to do something in health and technology so i spent started spending my evenings and weekends working on those ideas and i'd set this firm deadline and a few months into that process, then I had this stroke out of nowhere. So the way it's all worked out, I've, I've been very, very lucky. But all I can say is just be careful what you wish for. <laughs> it's also important to wish for things. Well, yeah. So it kind of it forced you into that quick change. You wouldn't have you, you, that. You, although yeah. you'd have set a deadline for yourself, that might that deadline might have been extended. But this made sure you got on it. <laughs> the deadline would not have been extended oh, really? because. I, I treat those those sort of things very seriously. So I gave myself a year, which is a really good runway. And the idea was by November 30th, I'm resigning because I'm not going to be employed by these guys when, when the new oh, year wow. hits. Okay. So that, that's how I'd been thinking about it. But um, what the stroke did, it gave me all the time and space to think and learn and read that I'd been craving until that point. Wow. And so how long, how long then did you spend before you, so you had a stroke, then you had that time then to read and research. What kind of time did you give yourself before you were going to action anything? Ha, great question. Mm-hmm. So the physical recovery took about six months. So that was how long it took me to get to a point where I started feeling physically good again. And that was the point that I was actually due to go back to my old job, but had decided ahead of time that I wasn't going to do that. So 
six months later, I started working for a startup to gain experience because I just figured I'd rather work for, I'm not going to get paid as much, but I'd rather work for a company where I can learn more about the kind of things I want to learn mm. about. So I started working for an app development company and um, I actually ended up working for two startups while spending my evenings and weekends working on my own ideas. And it took a further 12 months, so six months after a stroke and a further 12 months to me, for me to get to the point where I realized I'd learned a lot and had got absolutely nowhere on my own ideas. <laughs> and that, that was a point where I hit what I would call a desperation point, which was if I don't make something work in the next six months, I'm going to have to go back to my old career. And, and that in my mind was the worst thing I could do because mm -hmm. then it'd be even harder to get out. So it, I mean, of course it wasn't the worst thing I could do, but I just created that construct in my mind, mm -hmm. partly knowing that was going to help me not do that. Um, so health and technology hadn't worked. In hindsight, it's just because I didn't know what to do, typical first time entrepreneur stuff. And out of desperation, I turned to property and thought, okay, let me commit one year to this industry because I know it's really inefficient. And I thought, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I figured out, worst case, I, I, I'm smart enough to buy and refurb and sell a place and make yeah. some money that way. So that that's, you know, the, the journey was far from linear. I actually ended up doing that combination of desperation and fear and commitment. So I forgot all about the health and technology stuff and just focused on this one thing. Whereas up until that point, I'd been very, you know, this idea, that idea, very, very all over the place with it. And commitment's a powerful thing. So mm. it was supposed to be a year. Year one went well enough to do a year two. And I'm actually now on year eight of that business. Wow. I still have that business. And that business actually is the one that is my primary income mm. whilst I build up my current one. So it, it worked out. At what point did you start the health and technology, start on the health and technology ideas then whilst you were in the property industry as well? I made that decision five years ago today the day that we're recording oh wow oh, so, happy anniversary yeah five years thank you very much <laughs> so what what had happened the property business had gone quite well so i started trying to scale it and at the same time i'd co-founded a property technology business with with a bunch of other guys that i knew and that did two things the first thing is I really didn't enjoy scaling the property business because I wasn't that interested in property. Mm. I was interested in working with great people and doing great deals, which I'd got to do a lot of. And starting the technology business, but knowing that I wouldn't be able to become the CEO of it in on my terms made me think, well, actually, I could have another crack at technology. And I came to this realization that, number one, I've picked up enough entrepreneurial experience to actually know what to do in health and tech now. And secondly, because it was my lifestyle by this point, it's a few years after a stroke and I, you know, I'm doing all the nutrition and exercise and yoga and meditation and sleep and biohacking and all this kind of stuff. I thought this is a re this, this is a place that I know I want to be involved in. Mm -hmm. And I could see what was happening with the wellness sector starting to emerge in London after it had already emerged in Australia and the mm -hmm. US. And secondly, it was economic. I, I also figured out that we're living longer but we get sicker younger and these are largely metabolic diseases. So I figured economically, there's probably good money to be made in mm. that sector as well. So it's a combination of those two things. And what I did over the last five years, I spent the first two just basically mentoring a few wellness entrepreneurs whilst still working on my property stuff because I needed to figure out how to wind some of that down and finish some projects and that kind of thing and, and restructure it so I'm less involved. And then... So, so yeah, it's, it's been a five-year journey, but I'd say I've been properly involved for maybe the last two, two and a half. I guess that, that mentoring probably worked two ways in a sense as well, didn't it, I imagine? Oh, as it was it... for my benefit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honest, love it. Yeah, and, and yeah. Ta... No, I, was, I was giving these folks some something really useful as well, because what the wellness industry is full of is really passionate, well-intentioned people who don't really know the fundamentals of business, not, not through any other fault than you have to go through that. Yeah, they've never been exposed to it, have they? Yeah, and it's, uh, I had to learn it the hard way and I've learned a set of principles about things that do work and things that don't work and therefore I could be very helpful to them. But I was very open about the fact that this was a way for me to learn about what's going on in the industry and what the different mm. models are because I really wanted to take my time to figure out what my next step was. And 
I'm, I'm thinking, so a lot of what you're doing is, is, is going to make money and hopefully it will continue to make money. But it seems like money in itself isn't the driving force. It's, it's part of it, but it's not the driving force. So I'm guessing what I'm asking there is what is wealth for you? Huh. So you're right in the sense that it's not the driving force, but it is an important part of mm. it. So there's four things that I can have an infinite amount of in my life and it will never be too much. And those four things, and I, I hope I can remember them now that I've said <laughs> this four, but, but I know there's four. Those four things are health mm. because I've, been in a situation where those things were almost taken away from me i think i can never have too much love in my life mm. never have too much health in my life i knew i was going to forget one uh. and the fourth one is money I'm, I'm pretty sure i i can never have too much money in my life because i'll always find something useful to do with it so i don't have a feeling of there's an upper limit of how much money i want in my life so it is a driver but i see it as a subset so the most important thing with with my current activities and businesses is the impact we can have but a percentage of that impact has to translate into monetary gain as well and and i'm really good about the idea that we do a load of free stuff that's out there for people to benefit and then a small set of them will pay us to do something more mm. and and that's that's exactly how it's kind of playing out at the moment so so in terms of what you're offering now then what is what is the free stuff that's out there and like, like what is your current offer as it were to the world would you say so the project i started two and a half years ago as a side project is called mind unlocked mm. and that started off as a side project as one of a number of things that i thought i might want to do as a business but i wanted to test the water first and the basic thesis was that there's a bunch of mental well-being tools which are scientifically robust and very practical in their nature but they're not being embraced by a lot of people who are simultaneously complaining about stress insomnia anxiety those kind of things so my thinking was if i marry these tools with the science and the practicality what will happen who's going to come are they going to come back is it going to be valuable that that was a basic thesis and it turned out that that was very much the case and i've built up a bit of an audience around that started off by doing quite a lot of events around central london ended up picking up some sponsors and partnerships and, and that kind of thing from from some interesting people and then about 18 months ago decided that okay i do want to turn this into a business the catalyst for that was picking up a really good co-founder who had a similar drive and a complementary skill set so what we've done over the last 18 months is we've wanted to turn what i'd done from an events basis into more of a digital product that could be delivered dig digitally and so the first thing we did was build an online course so we've got an online course which has done pretty well for us um we've done some online workshop delivery and and the majority of it is all consumer facing but through building the brand i've actually picked up some corporate clients and we've never i've never had the intention to go out there and sell to loads of corporates even though that would be quite a viable way of doing this in fact if money was the main driver that would be the best way to do this mm. but for me it it's just not that personally interesting to go and sell to a bunch of corporates partly mm. because i spent another career doing that and partly because i don't see a lot of impact that way i see a lot of things being done and not much actually changing for various reasons which we can go into if you want but on the consumer side, when somebody spends their own money, that then they're more motivated to make mm. a change. So that's that's the basis of the offer at the moment. But we're going to be developing that with like more more courses and more workshops and you know all delivered online. And then the free layer on that is all the blogs, all the guided meditations. Um, we're we're working a lot on original content at the moment that we're going to be releasing quite soon. So. The big thing for me this year, now that I've proved the model and now that we know that there's a desire for the things that we're doing, is really to increase that free layer. And partly because there's folks out there who just don't have the ability to pay, but they could benefit. And partly because it's it's good it's good for us as well, because this is how people get to know, like and trust what we're doing. And some of them might then decide, okay, we want to do something deeper or more structured or have our hands held in a more hands-on kind of way. Mm. And how do you find that, I guess, that duality in the yoga industry or the wellness industry in general, there is sometimes struggle or people complaining that almost everything should be free. 
Of course, it shouldn't. I mean, it shouldn't be. People need to make money along the way. But have you ever had any kind of blowback saying, hey, well, all of this should be free? Do you ha- have you had people? Or have you had discussions where people have challenged you on that? I've had many over over the years. Uh, not Sometimes about yoga, sometimes me just playing devil's advocate uh, in conversations. But I believe people with skill who have spent time building skill and expertise should be paid appropriately for that or so what what are, you, what are your thoughts on that i mean first of all i've had a huge amount of criticism of course i have mm. for, for lots of reasons um everything ranging from why do i think i should be doing this all the way to how can you charge money for meditation meditation should be free because that's our main product at the moment and my my thinking around that is yeah absolutely it, it not only should it be free it is free you don't need to pay anyone to go and learn to meditate but unfortunately my time isn't free because Mm. i have bills to pay and so on so i'm not saying to anyone you need to come and spend money with us or anybody else that's out there everything we're doing can be learned by somebody motivated for free if they've got time on their hands it just so happens that a lot of our audience doesn't have a lot of time on their hands want somebody to have done the sifting and the structuring and the basically working out what's going to move the needle and what isn't and that's what they're paying for so we don't we don't have a lot of people criticizing us for the fact that we're charging money for these things because that's not really the audience that we're working with mm. but it, it's useful when that happens because it was definitely thinking around the fact that actually there does need to be a lot of free resource and we, and we do need to put a lot of stuff out there because some people could benefit and they don't have the ability to pay and we don't want to be in a situation where we can only help people who want to pay mm. but if you want to do the deeper stuff the, the stuff that involves more of our time or effort or more hand-holding more structure then then those for now they're going to be the paid for things and i've got a really comfortable relationship with that because we're not forcing anyone to pay for any of this stuff and if somebody wants to learn these things for free i'll happily point them in the right direction mm. it's in it's, it's i think it's a really interesting topic and actually at the moment it's almost uh come to the forefront a little bit you know, we're currently in lockdown and there's lots of people giving away stuff for free or very cheap which then makes it very hard for the people who let's say are charging for yoga a reasonable a reasonable amount to actually justify, almost justify them charging that amount. And it's, it's, it's become a hot topic. Like I've had strong debates with people recently about why I'm not offering all of my classes for next to no money. And people can't seem to... It's just a value exchange, isn't it? You're yeah. just offering, offering something that you've spent time and money yourself on and then it should be rewarded with money if you have it. <laughs> well, no, no, indeed. Uh, well, so- well, let me, let me give, give you my view on that because I think it's quite interesting, right? I, I don't think it matters what time and money you've put into your work, into your training, into your platform, into your production. And it doesn't matter what time and money I've put into it. When it comes to market forces, the only thing that causes somebody to put their hand in their pocket and hand it over is that they see, as Holly quite rightly said, a value exchange. Mm -hmm. I'm going to exchange this money in my pocket for what you've got because I think it's worth it to me. Mm -hmm. So subjective from the start. But the point is, not a single one of us is saying, you must come and buy this. It's not government mandated that people Mm -hmm. have to come and buy this stuff. At the same time, in in both of your cases and my cases, I know you've got free stuff out there. I know you've got um, YouTube channels and various things like that. So the, the point I guess I'm making is when it comes to a free market economy, the only reason somebody pays for something is because they think it's going to solve a problem for them. So I don't have an issue with anyone charging anything. It's their prerogative. Mm. Whether they can actually make a business out of that, that's a different question. But if the problem they're solving is per- perceived as big enough, then they'll sell it. That, that's the reason that Apple can sell £1,000 iPhones to people who can barely afford it because the perception from those people is that it's going to solve some problem around yeah. feeling cool, feeling important, feeling they've mm. got the best thing, even though they are the same people who would complain about a £10 yoga class. And, and that's not a criticism of those people. It's just to highlight the differential in how they view a value exchange. Yeah. Mm. Can we backtrack a little bit? There's something that's stuck in my mind right from the beginning. Um, you said something, sorry if I've got this completely wrong, but something about how you want to take 
um the pain part away from people how uh when you meditated oh no hang on what am I trying to say you want to take the did you remember what, what you said about the beginning about um yeah, yeah, yeah sorry sure. I completely forgotten how you yeah. said it but it was yeah carry on so for me I had to go through quite a lot of trial and error yeah to figure out what meditation needs to look like in my life based on my lifestyle based on my timetable based on my desires based on my goals and i think we'll take meditation as one example because it's quite a good one that fits quite well into this analogy meditation is an umbrella term for a number of different things there's no one meditation in, in the same way there's no one exercise there's no one sport mm. so however we're still so early in terms of where meditation is as a mature concept in the mainstream that most people think it is a singular thing so that's why people say things like oh i tried meditation it didn't work for me mm, yeah. or i can't get up at six in the morning and i can't meditate then and i've been told that you have to meditate then or or it's not meditation which i have heard ridiculous things like that <laughs> so i think for me to cut through all of that and actually because when i started meditating i'm really curious and i'm a little bit skeptical as well mm. so i started looking at well Where's the research in this space? Where's the evidence? Who's written about this? And I found amazing stuff and I found some very sketchy stuff. So I guess the point I'm making is that taking away the pain is about when somebody doesn't have a lot of time, but mm. they do want to solve their problems around stress, insomnia, anxiety, focus, those kind of things. What we've got with meditative practices is a really powerful set of practical tools mm. that can be applied to those. And the application isn't a case of all meditation does the same thing. Broadly, they'll do similar things in the same way that all exercise will broadly be good for the physical body. But yoga is different to boxing. Physical yoga, asana, is different to boxing, is different to swimming, is different to running. And I think what we're starting to figure out and see is that different meditative styles will have different effects in the brain. And uh, yeah, so when, when we talk about taking away the pain, it's really more about taking away that critical thinking, the hours, the trial and error, so that with that course in particular, for example, we're guiding people so they can figure out based on the layering of knowledge at the end of it, what meditation should look like for them in a way that works for them in a way that's personalized. Does that make sense? Mm. I guess it's like when you when you first start yoga, you try so many different teachers because the yoga is all called vinyasa flow or whatever, but there's so many different teachers and styles that you have to keep trying loads of different ones until you find the one that works exactly. and resonates with you. Exactly. What was exactly. this? What was this when you said different meditations do different things on different parts of the brain? Come on, let's talk, yeah. talk, talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, gi I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, every meditative practice that is safe and appropriate for that for that person which for, for most of us if we don't have a psychiatric if we don't have a psychiatric disorder if we don't have ptsd then most generic meditation is going to be appropriate so most of them will trigger the relaxation response they will i'm talking purely about the practical side of it not the spiritual side just the practical side they will trigger the relaxation response they will basically take us away from fight or flight into our body's healing systems it will lower heart rate it will lower blood pressure it will counteract the effects of adrenaline and cortisol so so most western styles of meditation would definitely do those things especially everything that's kind of mindfulness meditation but to give you a couple of different examples right if we want to train attention and focus then meditative styles that get us to focus on a mantra or breath or body feeling, they actually train the brain in focus and attention because every time our attention goes away, we bring it back. Mm -hmm. And that's doing a mental rep that actually builds the neural pathway so that the brain starts being able to access that focus and attention more easily. Mm. However, if we want to use meditation to boost our creativity and creative output, then it's a completely different style, style called open monitoring, where we step back from our thoughts and become the observer and let things pass. And th these things do get blended and, and, and I blend them sometimes as well in things I'm doing. But if we want to work on creativity, then there's been some interesting studies that have shown that the open monitoring style of meditation 
basically leads to an increase in divergent thinking, i.e. we can generate a lot of ideas in terms of volume as opposed to a few good ones. And that's a much better thing for the creative process than focusing on a word or a breath or something mm. like that. So this, fascinating, uh, this open it? monitoring one, just so I understand it. So it's almost like you, you are just sitting as the observer of thoughts and the thoughts are coming in like ticker tape and you're observing <laughs> them tape, and then letting them go and just... Is that that exactly the analogy that I like to use, and I use this in my meditations as well, is that imagine if you're at a countryside railway station and you're sitting on a hill behind it so you can see the trains coming and going. So your thoughts are like those trains where they're mm. coming and going and pretty they come non regular. <laughs> on their own schedule as they want to come just like thoughts mm. and and you know it stops passengers get off some get on it goes off on its own accord and it's your choice if you want to get involved in that thought mm. or if you want to get on that train or if you decide you want to understand it or if you believe you are the train but in this style of meditation what we're training is when you're the observer, you're just letting it happen and you you might be labeling, you might be noting, but you're not getting involved. And mm. that that's that style of open monitoring, which um, is very much about learning to suppose, accept thoughts and understand that we are not our thoughts. But one of the really interesting byproducts of that is that when this has been done under clinical conditions and studied, it's been shown to give a increase in creative output. And why is that? Because it increases something called divergent thinking. And divergent thinking is when we can generate lots of ideas in terms of volume of ideas, mm. as opposed to what most of us can do, especially if we don't have creative jobs or don't work in creative industries, is that we struggle to generate ideas. And when it comes to creative process, it's actually really, in really important to start with to generate lots of ideas so that then you can discard stuff. So, so to give you an example, the way, the way that I would not have considered myself a creative person before I started meditating, but since I started meditating, especially when I'm doing stuff like that, I'll have a notepad next to me and I'll write stuff down. When, when I had this idea about this mental wellbeing business, I needed to think of a name. And over the course of about eight or nine days, I generated over a hundred potential names through these kind of methodologies and 98 of them were absolutely awful <laughs> but the point is you've got to be able to generate a big volume first and there are brain training practices and meditative practices that can help unlock things so that you can start generating and one of them is to stop being detached from what you're generating mm. So did you test this first and then think, oh my God, I'm a creative genius? Or did you research it first and, and see that it, cre it created creativity um, and then put it into practice? I think what happened when I started meditating regularly, when, when I committed to meditation, I started becoming more creative, but I wouldn't have described myself as a creative person. Mm. And but then you get to a point where you're like, well, there's all this stuff I've created. You can't not be creative if you've done that. Mm. But then when I started delving into the science of meditation and started looking for reports, I started finding a couple in that area. Mm. And that's when I married back right. the idea that, oh, it could be because of that. Mm. What, what I find at a personal level, because at the end of the day, this is all very personal, you know, just because a study says something, it doesn't mean that's the case for absolutely yeah. everybody. I, I find in general, when I meditate, I am more creative. And I think that's partly my, my hypothesis, because this is not proven, is because we live in such a busy world where we're given so many thoughts and opinions by everything, including our smartphones and news, other mm. people, that when we find that stillness and when we give our brain a bit of break, that then it goes back to its natural creativity, which I think I, th I think we all actually have that. Mm. Can I ask then, going a bit off track, not off track, but something else, um, does your meditation practice have a spiritual aspect at all or do you teach that at all or is it purely science-based for you and practical? So in terms of with Mind Unlocked, it's purely practical and science-based. Mm -hmm. From a personal point of view, there is a different aspect to it, which is not to do with the practical outcomes of dealing with stress and helping with melatonin production and stuff like that mm -hmm. and and that's 
of course, the altered states of consciousness. Yeah. So that's something that I have not yet seen any device claiming to help with meditation or replace meditation be being able to replicate because I don't think it can yet. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say yet is because I think where technology is going to go is very, very interesting. But I, I don't talk about this very often, but I'm not shy about saying it, that there is a aspect of my meditation practice, which is much more to do with states of consciousness and what I get to experience. And I would say that through meditative practice, I've experienced states of bliss, experienced states of joy without having to go anywhere and do anything. Whereas before I was doing these things, I would need to go and get onto a snowboard or I'd need to go and go to a really good restaurant or mm. I'd need to be told a compliment or something like that. So I think it's actually very powerful to have access to those kind of states and, exper and experience them when they come without having to do anything except go inwards. So it's all there inside for the taking. You don't need to go anywhere to feel or, those things. Or take anything. <laughs> well, I, th I, think, yeah. <laughs> I think we're learning that now, right? Because we're, we're all forced to, yeah. uh, the only journey is inwards right now. Yeah. God, yeah, it can be scary, I think, when you're faced with yourself for such long periods of time. Yeah, but I, th I, think that, I think that's particularly scary when we look at our client base for people who've just worked for 10 or 20 years nonstop and never given, them a mo given themselves a moment to think about what they're doing and this whole time it's not to say they haven't had a good time doing it or a fulfilling time doing it but it has been an avoidance strategy of sorts and i think what's happening at the moment for a lot of us is that we're really being forced to look at ourselves mm. and what's important to us I, I was very lucky because this all happened for me 10 years ago because these are the big questions in my life after the stroke mm. it's that's an interesting one I, I i do i do believe that uh yeah, we are being forced to question to some degree, but this is a kind of unique situation. It's combined for a lot of people with a lot of fear uh, in yeah, the big time. lots of uncertainty. So when this started, I thought, right, three weeks, probably not going to earn that much money, but I'm going to you know, do a longer meditations day and I'm going to have a, a more of a daily yoga practice again. I'm going to do all these wonderful things. Then the reality struck of, okay, this can be extended money is now not so certain future's not so certain so i think that for a lot of people actually if anything there's a lot more insecurity coming up right now and i agree that when people are working often as you said there's distraction people spend all of their lives thinking about work thinking about the next steps filling filling their mental diary up on a constant basis and never get any time for self-inquiry but i do think that this point in time it's much the same i think the distractions are just taking a different form however there are certainly some people who are able to kind of capitalize on this but i think what you say there is really important this idea that most of us spend a lot of our lives distracting ourselves and it's very rare that we actually have that time to step back and observe and that's what i always try and articulate in yoga is don't treat it as a, a physical class like if you want to run or if you want cardio go for a run you know, if you want if you want to get abs do something that will help you get abs yoga won't be the most efficient thing for that but yeah, you... I, I didn't get abs from your classes so i can i can match <laughs> for that one but it's no that I, I if anything i've lost abs <laughs> through my yoga uh but it's it's a chance for self-inquiry and when even as a yoga teacher i'll be running around the city all day every day but then the moment i get back on the mat even just literally put my head on the mat and in a quiet room there's so much can come from that uh, and then when I actually meditate, uh, even more stuff fires up. On, I was going to say on so what you the way you're describing meditation is very sensible and logical, which I love. Like I'm the kind of guy that likes that. It's all very well researched and evidence based. And this is kind of linked, I guess, in some sense, to biohacking. Can and, I? Can I? Oh God, on, sorry. I'm really sorry if I'm being thick here. What's biohacking? Yeah, that's what I'm just, I was just say. putting it out there because yeah, I bet some, someone listening is when, thinking the same. When I when I first heard of biohacking, I assumed it was related to like the documentaries that I saw like ten years ago, where you'd go to tattoo conventions and then someone suddenly people have horns and they're getting like implants. That's kind of what I thought biohacking was like: people getting horns or like dyeing their eyes blue or getting scales. I have a feeling oh, it's not I that. think that's advanced cosplay. <laughs> no, no, there's, a, no, there's yeah. another term for it, and then, then, then I saw the no, microchips. Yeah. Then I thought like microchips, 
Microchips. And I think, okay, is that just biohacking? It's just putting technology in body. Is that all it is? Okay, is it now I really want to know what it is. Over it's, to Naraj. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you... I'm glad you asked because actually I'm not a fan of the term. What what the term should be is health optimization because the problem with biohacking is it's it's a bit of a it's a provocative term where when I first heard of it I thought it was exactly what you're talking about which is trans transhumanism which which is basically putting chips in the body wanting to live in wanting to live forever you know you know that's the kind of thing that gets gets the press what it really is is actually adapting to try and live naturally in an unnatural world using science, nature, and systems thinking. Mm. So basically, I, I think we're actually, a lot of us in the health space are biohackers to an extent, but I think the thing that makes it a little bit, the distinction for me is when you start quantifying things, that that's when it moves into actual biohacking, when you start measuring and quantifying. Mm. So to give you an example, and, and th this would happen, um, uh, so, sorry, to give you an example, I wear a ring on my finger, which uh, basically tracks all my sleep. And mm. what's that it's, called? It's not that. It's called Aura. Or, o oh, I've heard of that. Aura. O U R A. Yes. And it's it's almost like a bit of a rites of passage for a biohacker. It's like, it's <laughs> like you know you're you're either you're in the fellowship of the ring or you're yeah. not. But but it's also a really interesting piece of kit because a lot of things like Apple watches can do similar things, but when it comes to sleep tracking these guys have absolutely nailed it at the moment more than anybody else. And they've got a really rich set of data around sleep. And the, the downside of that is that there are plenty of people who will let their mood and feeling be dictated by their data, which I think is not a healthy way to mm -hmm. deal with it. So you could be feeling great. And then you look at your data and it says that you slept badly and now, now you don't feel yeah. good. The way that I use it and the way that I recommend to use it is I always check in with myself first, try and understand how I feel, how I've slept, how I, what I think my data says. Then I'll look at the data. But what's interesting is when I start changing things in my routine and start seeing how that's changing my biometric data. So so I think the biohacking piece, it's not all about gadgetry necessarily. It's not all about technology, but it is about testing and measuring. And it often delves into areas that slip through the cracks of conventional medicine. Mm. Are these you you put on your uh, feed the other day some glasses? What were they? Yeah, mm. blue blocking glasses. So, so I've noticed oh, yeah. these are trending a little bit at the moment, um, which, which I find quite funny because it, you know it's something I've been doing for a couple of years and something I'll still be doing in a couple of years' time. So basically, one of the biggest disruptors to our sleep is blue light mm -hmm. at night, which comes from our screens, comes from our mobiles, mm. TVs, com comes from the light in the ceiling. But it's, it's the artificiality. You know, when I talked about trying to live naturally in an unnatural world, we've confused ourselves about what is day and what is night. We've confused our bodies because our brains are 40,000 years old. The mm. modern technology like light bulbs is a few hundred years old mm. and, and all this screen time is 15, 20 years old. So what's happened is all that blue light coming in at night it basically confuses our body we don't don't realize it's night so we don't do the melatonin production which is a sleep hormone and then we have a disrupted sleep and there's two things that we can do about that the first is if we get some natural daylight in the morning that starts teaching our body and by that i mean outside not inside because it's very very different when you get daylight outside to through a window that starts teaching our body that this is morning yeah. And it starts resetting our circadian rhythm. And the other piece is basically once the sun goes down, trying to mimic nighttime conditions. So the glasses I wear, they basically start filtering out blue light and green light so that my body starts understanding this is nighttime now and it will start the melatonin production and it starts what helping me wind down. And from the point I started wearing those, it definitely made a difference to my data. Is another idea to just not look at blue light an hour before bed? Or is that a no-go for you? <laughs> it, it, it is. It, it is. Um, but I don't I do not do that either. So blue light doesn't just come from our screens. It also comes from our light bulbs. Oh, like all right. The Sorry. Yeah, light. you said. Okay. That's interesting. What's your, I mean, uh, I mean, it's, where, where do you get most of your data from? Your personal? Is it from the, just from the ring or? For sleep data, it's from the ring. For, for from other stuff, I don't, I, I track sleep more. I suppose I track sleep more 
religiously than I track anything else. But when I'm adopting new habits, that's when I start tracking things. So I'd, I'd say it's only really my sleep data that I'm really that bothered about at the moment. The rest of my data is more about how I feel, how my energy level is, how my focus is, that kind of reflective thing. But if I felt that those areas needed attention, then I'd probably start tracking it a bit more accurately. Niraj, I look at you and I read your posts and they're always so inspiring. I so enjoy reading your your Instagram posts, I do. You sound, you seem like someone that is just on the ball, constantly motivated, driven. Do you ever have off days where you feel unfocused, unmotivated, don't want to get out of bed in the morning from a non not from an, in a non-objective way so not because not because your ring says you're having an off day <laughs> yeah forget the ring <laughs> yeah forget no i i agree forget the ring I, I i take that data with a pinch of salt it's good but it's not totally accurate so when it comes to distraction i'm probably the most distracted naturally distracted person i know so <laughs> i have to do an awful lot of things to keep myself focused mm. so we can talk about some of those but i i know that that's an issue for me and it has been ever since i started work, working for myself and l- largely you know without a team around me and without going to an office several mm. years ago um i don't i don't think i have an off day in the sense of unmotivated because it, that that drive where it comes from it's because i know that tomorrow is not guaranteed mm-hmm. i know that i know that this afternoon is wow. not guaranteed so it's more about I just need to make today count and i'm also very grateful for the fact that i get to that i have got the use of my legs that i have oh, wow. got the use of That's my brain amazing. and and none of these things are guaranteed so i think you know the, the motivation isn't an issue but i i will have days where i might be lower energy mm. than, than other days but the way that i deal with that is that i've, I've got a massive task list i'm sure, sure like many of us have and I actually categorize my tasks, not, not just by sort of importance and what's going to actually move the needle, but also by energy management, like what kind of brain energy they're going to require. So when I have those days where I'm just not feeling on it or I'm feeling tired or I'm feeling distracted, I've got a whole load of menial things that still need to get done. And I just do those. Mm. So that that's the first one. And then the other one, if I'm doing something really important and I can't afford to have that off day, it's, I'll give you two. One is understanding an off day is a mental construct. Nothing magical happens at midnight to make the next day better. So I turn it into into an off hour. I'm like, Mm. I'm going to wallow in my self-pity or I'm going to eat all the ice cream or whatever. (laughs) Until, until, you know, it's like 20 minutes till the hour. So I'm Mm. going to give myself 20 minutes to to basically indulge in in whatever, pity myself. (laughs) And then when when that clock turns, that's a new opportunity to just, you know, spend an hour doing doing Mm. something productive. So that's the first piece. And the second piece, if if I know I need to do something, but I'm struggling to get myself to do it, I I make a bargain with myself because I do have voices in my head all the time. And and that bargain is I'm going to do it for just five minutes. And I've got a timer on my desk and I put five minutes on and it's, it's, it's a digital timer. So you can see it count down. And then I just do that thing for five minutes. And most of the time when I sit down to do something for five minutes, when the five minutes is up, I'm, I'm in the mood now. I, mm. I want to do oh, it. Like that. That's it's, such it's a good starting, tip. starting that's the hard bit. Yeah, that's so it, true, no, isn't it? Neil Gaiman has mm. a not dissimilar strategy. The writer, Neil Gaiman, when he's not that creative, he says that he'll go into a room you know, with, with, with a book uh, and he'll say to himself, I've got two options. I can either do nothing and nothing means nothing or I can write. <laughs> They're the two options, nothing or write. And I'm going to give myself the whole day, in fact. And they're my two options. And soon enough, <laughs> boredom, boredom gets a better of him. And he might not write amazing stuff, but he writes and gets it. So it's a bit more of, I guess, a strategy to combat lack of creativity, mm. but not dissimilar ilk, just giving yourself some time. Yeah, going back to what we were talking about earlier, I, I haven't done that, but I like it a lot because especially when you're creating outputs and a lot of what I'm doing is synthesizing things I'm hearing, reading, assessing it and then putting it back in a way that kind of fits with the way I think and the way that our audience thinks. And an awful lot of that is trial and error. An awful lot of that is actually just start writing things. I mean, Holly, I can't tell you for every one of those valuable Instagram posts, Mm. I've probably got another 10 unpublished that I knew weren't good enough. But without those 10, the one that's good doesn't exist because it's all just part of the process. And I think it's a good, good analogy that I found everything isn't going to work 
but the one strategy that's guaranteed not to work is just not doing anything. Yeah. yeah. You're so disciplined. Have you always been like this or is it something you've worked on over the years? Uh, I, th- I think I was extremely lazy until about 22. Oh, that makes me happy. <laughs> uh, well, well I, just, I just had a very blase attitude towards education. I had this yeah. you know, belief that I can do anything I want, which which in hindsight is you know mostly empowering, but also can make you a little bit lazy. Yeah. And then I, I just knew when I started in the working world, I had this belief, and, I, and again, I'm not sure how true this is, but it works for me, that I'm going to have to work hard, that as mm. a minimum, I'm going to have to work hard. Mm. So I think in the early days, it was like that. And then today, it's more that I, I'm just very, very interested in the things I'm doing. Like, like I've managed to align my working life with what I'm interested in anyway. So actually, the issue for me now is more about having discipline about stopping and having discipline about having cut off times because mm-hmm. the danger, and this is the case for a lot of people who are passionate about what they do, if you don't do that, then it's all too easy to burn out because you're actually interested in the thing that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And the other bit is separating what am I interested in that's interesting versus what I'm interested in that's actually really relevant to what we're trying to do because otherwise it's very easy to get distracted and go down rabbit holes. Mm. Have you got any advice for people who, because there's so many people in London, as you know, who struggle to actually switch off and take that guilt-free time, what would be your advice on how to do that then, to separate the work from the switching off? How do you do it? I think the identity is really important. So understanding that if, for me, I'll just talk about how how Mm -hmm. I rationalise it. I want to be really productive and I want to have high energy and I want to be able to get a lot of things done. And it's the understanding that 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 cutoff and that recovery time and that allowing the body to heal and regenerate time is a critical piece of productivity. Mm. It's, It's understanding that just going with your foot on the pedal at 100 miles an hour for 15, 16 hours a day, Mm. seven days a week. That strategy might work for two, three, four weeks if you're really, really driven. But if we keep doing that to our brains and bodies, we know with our bodies, if we push it physically with no no recovery, with no regeneration, you're you're going to break something. In my opinion, it's the same with our brains. And that's why we're seeing more psychiatric disorders, more severe anxiety, more of those kind of things, uh, you know, adrenal fatigue, all of these kind of things because people are not giving their brains a proper break not just from work but also all the crazy stuff that's coming in through our devices and so on yeah task manager what do you use that sounds very complex the way you manage your task i'm intrigued is it is it written (laughs) is this one of your creative outputs you have like a wall that is covered with post-it notes of various (laughs) colors so i i use a system called trello which is a free, free product. It's a free tech product, Trello, T-R-E-L-L-O. And that's like a Kanban board. So you can have different columns and move stuff around. So for overall like business and life management, that's what I use. And that's what we use internally at Mind Unlocked as well to like basically manage multiple projects and understand what's happening with what. But on a day, so that, that's the bigger picture stuff. On a day-to-day basis, at the start of the week, I take an A4 pad, and have it landscape and i basically have two or three columns on there and i just write down what what needs to happen that week mm-hmm. so that will be half the pad and then the second half i split into two so i've got 50 percent column and two 25 columns and the second one is for notes so just things that come up things that i think i might need to do think things that i know i need to note. and then the last one i think this one's really important that's my done list so i keep a list of what i got done because it's so easy to tick things off and forget what the hell you got done and feel like you weren't productive. Mm. So every week, at the end of the week, I've got a list of what I've got done. And that reminds me of what I've ticked off and it helps reinforce the whole whole piece. But, you know, after trying every system in the book, all the getting things done, all the productiv- productivity ninja stuff, complicated spreadsheets, all the rest of it, what works really well for me on a week by week basis is a piece of paper. I need to go back and make notes on all of this. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I, I find it so hard. I, I've read so many productivity books. And again, for a week, <laughs> I try something or for two weeks. And I, I, I've issue. never got into any kind of proper routine. And my, my most the recent... Issue. So, go on. Yeah, so, sorry, I keep interrupting you. But the, the issue I found is with productivity systems, if you fall off the system, that, then it all falls apart. 
and often the systems take quite a bit of time to manage mm. so that's why i have that one overarching system for all the big stuff like like you know that like the one month three month six month type stuff and then on a week-to-week basis i look into that look at look at my calendar and then note down okay this week here's the stuff and at the end of the week here's the three that are circle mm. that that are really, really important. And then I make it a priority. I, th- I think you, you and I have spoken about this recently. Since the lockdown, I don't take any meetings before two because I have the luxury of doing that. But what it means is that I can spend my mornings getting really focused work mm. done. And I think post-lockdown, I'm going to continue with that mm. me- method of, you mm. know, me- meetings happen from 2 p.m. onwards. So, so in my life, that can work. Obviously, it can't work for everyone. I think a guy called Cal Newport, I'm sure you know Cal. Yeah. Yeah, he wrote something along those lines. Oh, that was one of his strategies. Yeah, he's written some re- he's re- he's written some really good stuff. I've not read his latest, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's doing something yeah, similar. Yeah, but... I forget which one I which one I read. Deep work, it's, did you say? Yeah, deep work. Is that what it's uh, called? Yeah, yeah, no, it's called that. Deep work is the one I read recently, mm. uh, and that was one of the. Yeah, so he's a big advocate of this idea that you you spend focused time on the things that are the most important, which sounds really obvious, but our lives are filled full of distractions that will pull mm. us all over the place if we don't do that on purpose. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's finding what works for you, I suppose, isn't it? And then making it a habit, yeah, of which course. is so yeah. hard to make the habits. It's hard to make the the good habits and it's easy to... Oh, well, it's, it's, I think especially today. when you're constantly pulled in all directions. Yeah. Uh, and I think yeah. often in London, people are pulled constantly, like even physically yeah, time, pulled yeah. in different directions. Uh, I think we're going to need to do some quick a few tries. little quick fire yeah. ones for you now, if that's okay. Let's do it. Can I ask one first? Yeah, go. Do you have any bad habits? course i do tell us everything yeah (laughs) my god on the spot (laughs) just Um, one your worst bad habit or one you're you're working on that's not a bad habit (laughs) really crappy chocolate (laughs) which one which one's your fave um i like whole nut peanut m&ms yes yeah that's like once or twice a week but the beauty is now i can't get into any shops so i'm not not doing much of that anymore (laughs) Uh, what about bourneville you're kind of birmingham loosely based did you ever have bourneville chocolate um, I'm not a fan. No, he's I'm a peanut a butter and an M&M yeah. guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hold it t- though, that's Cadbury's. This has turned, this turned sour suddenly. <laughs> or sweet. Yeah. Are we not friends anymore? Uh, no, you um, love Bourneville. Well, well, well but, but isn't Bourneville the original Cadbury's factory though? And Holnut is Cadbury's, so... Oh yeah, no, Bourne- Bourneville is... Uh, Bourneville is an interesting... Oh, you, you mean the brand? Yeah. Yeah, Bourneville the chocolate? No. Yeah. Well, Bourneville is a really interesting case study just for people to look at in general. It was a... Uh, what was it? Not Freemason. Obviously not Freemasons. It was a... Uh, <laughs> Quakers, right? Quaker, yeah. Quaker family yeah. turned this whole little area of Birmingham into dreamland. Like built beautiful properties for their workers, outlawed any alcohol. And to this day, the Bourneville Village Trust, they stop alcohol being served anywhere except one place. There's no chip shops, etc. Crazy. Uh, the buildings are still beautiful. Uh, and it smells of chocolate. But I think they've just been bought by Kraft in the last two years. So it's probably getting less of a nice area now. Uh, <laughs> next quick fire. Next, next quick fire question. <laughs> uh, anything you've invested in in the last few years that has been really useful for you? So not a big investment, but something that you use in daily life that makes life better in some sense. Something you bought. I've got, a, I think it was like $25 or something. It was. It's a sleep mask and it's called Manta Sleep Mask. And it's like the best sleep mask ever. So... In my previous lockdown life, I was traveling a lot, wasn't sure what my circumstances were going to be. I know that having a blacked out room is really important to help me to sleep because mm. I'm particularly light sensitive. So, yeah, that sleep mask goes everywhere with me. Love it. Can you recommend a book that's really inspired you? So at the moment, I'm reading The Future is Faster Than You Think by Peter Diamandis mm. and Stephen Kotler. And that only came out a couple of months ago, earlier in 2020, and it's got some fascinating stuff about the future of technology over the next five years. Um, But going back to something you said, Holly, Atomic Habits by James Clear is my most read book of last year and most recommended of last year. One of the best books I've ever read. If you want to know about habit formation, Mm -hmm. it's the best. Oh, great. Oh, I'll read that. I think a final one is, is what is sacred for you? Hmm. In any sense. He's scratching his chin. Oh, such a tough one. Such a tough one. I think kindness is oh. sacred because there's never a reason to be a dick. So <laughs> no. that, that's been a big one for me from, from someone who has been plenty of that in my past. So I think 
kindness is something I've got a lot of time for and I really recognize it when I see it elsewhere. So I'd say if there's one thing that was sacred, it's probably that. So Can I lovely. ask one more? If that's okay. Oh, that was a nice okay. way to finish. I think this is lovely as well. Is you, one of the things that you think is most important in life is, I read somewhere, like actually finding the right partner. Oh yes, I read tell, this. Yeah, tell us mm. more about why, what do you think is the value beyond the obvious? Because it's the person who's going to have the biggest influence on your thinking, your desires, your the way your life is going to be, your big decisions. So I think you're, you're effectively inviting the person who's going to have the biggest influence at a conscious and subconscious level on you. So I just think it's something that should require more thought than it probably does in many cases. Mm, that's lovely. Mm. Nice way to we finish. End there. Thank you so Thanks much, Naraj. I could chat for hours. Honestly unbalanced.